Why, hello! Welcome to the Theology Podcast, and we're glad to be with you. And uh, we are not actually in each other's physical space, but we are connected virtually. We're virtually in each other's space. It's a different kind of physical connection. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, right outside of Portland. Whenever I mention that I'm in the Portland area, people ask me about blood in the streets and things like that, Antifa and stuff. And uh, I have to disappoint them, let them know that I don't actually have to fight my way into my house or my office every day. Even though you live in battleground, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. right. I live in Battleground, Washington, which is probably one of the funnest names for a town you could ever think of. And not only do I live in a town named Battleground, there was actually not a battle. It was actually ground that had been set aside for battle, and everybody thought, yeah, let's not fight after all. Now, there was one casualty, but it was a mistake. Anyway, so it's kind of like F Troop. You remember F Troop? It's kind of that kind of feel. But uh, we're glad that you're here after that uh, digression. And uh, why don't we uh, move on to Glenn so that you can just have enough of me? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor emeritus of history from Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I work with Ken Boa at Reflections Ministries. Super stuff. Tom, it's your day today, but just tell us a little bit about yourself now because I have a couple things I need to talk about. Okay. Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, uh, philosophy, and a host of other things. I actually have uh, something I should just kind of bump. I haven't bumped it yet, but this fall with the Fight, Laugh, Feast courses. I'm doing one on Christian theology and technology. So, and, and some of that may spill into today. So uh, it's going to be kind of fun. I've, I've been hammering a book out that ties systematic, ethical, and, and technological dimensions together. But I'm not ready to show nice. anything yet, just because I want to be, be, <laughs> be a little more ready. But anyway, that's that's something right. about what I'm up to. <laughs> no one, no one sees the wizard. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the wizard is at work. No one sees the wizard. That's right. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's great. That the the fight, laugh, feast is it the university? Is that is that the term that, that we use for the fight, laugh, feast university? I think I think that's true. I, I, I'm they, those guys move so fast. I'm just catching up, but I, I think it is something. <laughs> fight, laugh, feast university. I think is the. If, I hope I got that. Right. I have that right. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I know. In fact, I met a guy uh, at the uh, PCA General Assembly who was actually in your last class uh, with uh, those guys. Oh, he, nice. uh, was really glad that, to have been part of it. So uh, speaking of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, you know, we've got right up. By the time this show comes out, I believe we'll be like just a week or two away from the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference in Nashville. And if, if you haven't uh, registered for that, go ahead and register today. It would be great to have you there. Uh, we're going to be there. Be there. Pardon me, with uh, a bunch of other folks, uh, Doug Tenapple, Vody Bacham, Douglas Wilson, just a lot of great speakers. But we're going to be recording a live show, and we're going to be joined by our friend uh, uh, George uh, Grant, uh, and uh, we're going to be talking about Gnosticism and the sexual revolution. So it's going to be a, a fan, fun conversation. George is a very knowledgeable guy, and we're going to have a great time talking with him. So uh, go ahead and sign up for that. And uh, we'll see you in the Nashville area. It's actually going to be in Lebanon, Tennessee, but, uh, you know, the big town, of 
course, is Nashville. Now, another thing related to the Fight, Laugh, Feast uh, University, things that it kind of prompts me to talk about uh, something else, another opportunity online to learn is Davenant Hall. Davenant Hall, uh, you can, uh, at Davenant Hall, uh, they came to us uh, just a couple weeks ago to see if we'd be willing to talk a little bit about their online program. And uh, so we checked out uh, their course offerings, and they're marvelous. These guys are first class. And uh, anyway, uh, the list of courses we felt really good about, and uh, we said, sure, we'd be glad to talk about your program. So if you want to learn a little more about Davenant Hall, uh, you can actually learn or earn a master's in Protestant letters through them. They have some really uh, excellent uh, teachers there uh, who focus on languages, Latin and so forth, but also um, kind of the magisterial reformers. You know, when people think about the Reformation, obviously their minds go to Luther and Calvin, but they don't really go much further than that. They don't dig down deeper. And these guys at Devon Hall help you to get in touch with sort of the, the riches of the reformed faith and the reformed tradition. Yeah, look, and it, and and it looks uh, like from what what I'm saying and what I'm familiar with from them, which is very exceptional, is kind of a missing, you know, lacuna in the whole um, Protestant world. Is how they they look respectfully and not with a denigration towards the the the, the school of Protestant thought that followed the reformers. Um, a lot of people who mm-hmm. have been influenced by German idealism kind of look back at them and, and their use of more scholastic language with a very negative attitude. And they don't realize theologically what those reformers were up to, Peter like, uh, thinkers like Peter Migley and others. And so these, uh, th- this curriculum tends to unpack those riches of theology that uh, may not ha- uh, be in current fashion, but actually are, are offering things and riches of the gospel that we need, we need to hear right now. Yeah, and surprise, surprise, you may actually be more on the same page with German idealism than you are with the Magisterial Reformation. <laughs> if you don't know anything that you know anybody yeah. wrote before, say, the 19th century. So uh, we, we strongly endorse what they're doing there. Uh, their fall term begins on September 27th, and uh, if you want to, you know, look into what they've got, you know, registration is open until mid-September. Is there anything you want to say about that, Glenn? I know because you're our historian, and you've, you've had a chance to look at this stuff. <laughs> yeah, they, it, it looks like a great program. I like the fact that they've got a section on spiritual, a course on spirituality as well, yeah. um, because I think it's important both from a historical perspective, but also this is an area we need to grow in. I mean, so it, it, I think it's really good that they are including that. Um, the Davenant guys, everything I've seen by them has been really well done. Yeah. Yep. And they, they describe what they're doing as reimagining uh, theological education or something to that effect. Right. And what I can tell you is that the price of the courses is a whole lot less than what you're going to pay at a seminary. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. And you're going to get a whole lot more if <laughs> you're actually getting theology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so the point is, in practical terms, if you want to get a good theological education, uh, I would look very seriously at this. Yeah. Okay, so davidathall.com. Okay, so let's jump into the subject of the day, and it's your day, Tom. What are we talking about? Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to be riffing off of a fantastic book, um, Joseph Pieper's book, uh, Abuse of Language and Abuse of Power. Um, for anyone who's followed us in the past, we've picked up some of Pieper's work. And Pieper is a, a, a Catholic thinker, 
um, but someone who is consistently classical in his Christian understanding. And of course, as, as Protestants would part ways exactly on those points we would expect to. But on those other areas, we would find continuity. And this book uh, is as timely, even though it was written in, uh, in 74, as timely today as it could be, um, as if it was delivered right now. Um, and there's a lot of richness. So, so mm-hmm. let, let me just say something about Peter. A lot of our listeners love C.S. Lewis and his apologetics. If you like the kind of thing that you see in, say, mere Christianity or in miracles, you will not be disappointed in Peeper. Peeper is your German version of C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And and the, his, his sense of celebration and festivity and leisure at the heart of creation is pulling out something, I think, in Christianity um, which if the early Christians understood, um, and and I think in, in its connection to you, you know, the, the celebration of 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 you know the the means of grace is just it's profound, and we have a lot to go there. But this book um, is really an early, uh, early. I mean, to us, <laughs> um, a, a early right. ap- I mean, uh, sort of discernment that something that happened in the past is about to happen again and happen in a bad way. Um, and so because yeah. he is of that classical philosophical and theological world, we're dealing with the repetition. Um, although we're also dealing with, with kind of the, the movement of history towards um, more and more concentrated efforts of evil to do its job and redemption to have to win out, if you will. But what is he on to? Well, he's basically on to the question of sophistry and sophism and how it actually abuses language. Yep, that's it. That little little tiny gem of a book, you know. When it shows up, you're like, did I get ripped off? You know, but but I'll 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 admit you you did not. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot packed into this. In fact, I, I'm of the conviction, maybe it's because I write thin books. Yeah. <laughs> That that you know this what I think this evidence is is a lo- he's distilled his thought in yeah. such a way that every every sentence in this is absolutely essential. Yeah, well, th- and this is what I mean. I literally said, you know, this is this is interesting on, on YouTube until it gets canceled. Someone actually reads this whole work. Um, it's one of those kind wow. of things. And I thought, you know, what, it, as an episode, I, I said I wouldn't do that to you because you can get that on YouTube. But in a way, I could have kind of done that. You would have gotten so much. It's, it, it is profound. Um, and, I, and I'm not going to kind of just kind of sum up what he's doing. I'm going to kind of hit some themes and let us kind of riff off of them. And then, then I want to maybe move it to Derrida and deconstruction um, as kind of an, an, yeah. an intensification of the sophistry in kind of a new a new, you know, kind of new manifestation, if you will. Um, but one of the things I love about the beginning. So, so be, 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 before before you get there, I can tell Glenn is just itching to say something amusing. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. <laughs> All right. He's I read your face and I did, and I misread it. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking if, if you're doing Derrida, die, you're going to have to go on to Foucault. But that's well, you know. well, that's right. Well, what I would, if you're going to do Derrida, what we could do is kind of step step from some of these themes to Foucault, and then Derrida is kind of. Wanting to um, to to unravel Foucault and his kind of structuralist power network thing. Actually, I would I, actually it's interesting you say that because I think Peeper would have Foucault more in mind than Derrida in this book. 
um, we'll, we'll kind of get to that to kind of kind of because abusive language, abuse of power. Because Derrida thought he was up to something different. Um, he just wanted to, you know, he's kind of more like Rorty. He thought you could just play play your day away kind of thing. You know, get back to Play-Doh, if you will. Um, and, and life is Play-Doh. Um, but I think, I, think, um, I think Peeper is more addressing Foucault. I don't know if directly, but definitely in terms of the relevance of, of this book. Um, but one of the things I love at the beginning is he says, Plato's lifelong battle with the sophists those highly paid and popularly applauded expert in the art of twisting words who are able to sweet talk something bad into something good into turning things from white to black. Um, and uh, I think maybe that's a, a, a great way of entering into this. Is, is, so he said sort of, I see today, he's writing in the 70s, a similar situation. The case can be made that Plato, recognized, identified, and battled in the sophistry of his time, he saw a danger and threat besetting the pursuits of the human mind and the life of society in any era. Era. So what you can see here is he, he's kind of, first of all, talking about the, the way in which these kind of, these kind of patterns keep showing up um, of, of sophistry. It's a sin that keeps on ticking, if you will. Um, it takes on new. So, so, in, mm-hmm. so in other words, deconstruction and post-modernity uh, is not something brand new. It's That's right. actually just sort of a recapitulation of things that have already been dealt with in the past and we had to get beyond in order to have a decent civilization. <laughs> That's right. And, and so and he will say kind of the Christian linear approach. He will say that they, the, the, the kind of more sophistication that ends up developing, the more sophisticated the kind of darkness, right? Um, and that's why he kind of will move towards tyranny, uh, national social. I mean, these kind of forms that result from it. But, but he will say, yeah, there's nothing new under the sun happening here. Um, but it's interesting that he talks about the way it, it, his, his lifelong battle with the highly paid and popularly applauded experts. And this is one of the things he's developing um, after he talks about, and it was interestingly Hegel, who you don't typically talk about repetition and timelessness, who saw this consistent pattern of the the sophists take place. Um, That's another topic. But one of the things um, he wants to pick up on, he goes, the sophists are not as remote to us as we may imagine, quoting Hegel. But uh, Nietzsche's posthumous line, the error of Sophist question mark our time, um, and so this kind yeah, of so you know, so we should we should probably help folks out in podcast land uh, along with this whole matter. What what is a Sophist? Yeah, who were they in relationship to Plato? That kind of stuff. Yeah. So so does Glenn the historian want to take that, or I can run with it? <laughs> um, the. Um, the short answer that I would give is that the Sophists were a group of, quote, philosophers, although I'm not entirely sure that is even remotely fair to philosophers, who for money could, would argue any side of any issue and claim that they could prove whatever it is that they wanted to prove logically. So you can pay them to produce one argument and then pay them to produce an argument for exactly the opposite side. And they claim that through their sophisticated use of language and logic and all of that, they could prove literally anything. Yeah, which which would make them great, I guess, uh, 
speechwriters <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for well, any politician who was trying to pursue a particular agenda. That's right. Right. And, and that's the sort of thing that they would be paid for. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And so this is kind of what Pieper picks up on from the, the debates with Plato. And one of Plato's concerns, of course, is that relationship between uh, the compromise that ends up happening between truth, mind, and, and pay. And it's not that he's saying that people shouldn't be paid who teach and the right. But there's a difference between honorarium and, you know, funding, you know, uh, you know, what's the character going around doing the uh, CRT stuff? Uh, Abraham, I can't think of his name right now. Kendi. Right, $25,000 a gig. I mean, he would be the class, the cla- that would be for Plato, the classic kind of uh, rhetorician and sophists get, getting getting funds for for basically making arguments that are unchallengeable because they aren't moored to reality. Well, and two, what he what you're actually paying for when you when you when you hire him is an, an inoculation. Basically, I we can't be accused of being institutionally racist because after all, we paid big money for this guy to come and tell us how not to be institutionally racist. So that's right. And this is I think for a pass. This is one of Plato's big concerns is because what you have going on here is manipulation of meaning all around. Once money gets in, but also the arguing any side detach from any measure from reality. And so if you want to talk about what's... By the way, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, let me me just quickly interject here about the subject of honoraria. Now, honoraria uh, is not payment. It's not paying for something in in terms of exchange. So... Honoraria historically was, uh, you know, something that was uh, set aside or or given to the professions, meaning, you know, those who profess, who have some knowledge that is, is really significant and instrumental uh, and foundational for community life. And we don't want these people corrupted. We don't want them selling their information for money. Instead, what we want them to do is serve the community, and we're going to make sure that their needs are cared for. Yeah. Kind yeah. of like, you know, when we think about tenure, when a, when a professor is tenured, he or she doesn't need to think about whether or not what they say is popular or not. They could just say it. That at least is the ideal. Yeah. That, it doesn't hold up <laughs> so well today, as our friend Tony Eslin can uh, attest to. But uh, the idea was that we don't, we can't pay for, for health. That's, you know, originally why medical doctors were not paid in the sense of providing a service for money or we can't pay for justice. We don't want justice to be paid for. That's why law was uh, thought of in the same way. And you can't pay for eternal salvation. That's why ministers receive honorarium. They're not paid, but they're they're cared for in a way that uh, demonstrates the community honors them. Well, and in a way... When you pay for those kind of things, you can already see Plato's concern here, and, and of course, a Christian concern later, right? Um, that one is actually sort of Jesus's debates with the Pharisee who do these things for the recognition of people and this popularity and the virtue signaling. All the while, um, all the while, it, it, it is it is detached from from reality. Their hearts are, are, are empty, you know, graves, and so. And so that there is almost in the being paid for, um, you know, this this kind of wage for um, for truth, so to speak, um, empties it of truth because it already brings it 
Two, you're being motivated by something other than the pursuit of the good, the true, or the beautiful, or anything else. Um, you're being motivated by, and so one of the things that uh, Pieper notices is, is uh, uh, Plato's criticism of the exceptional successful um, aspect of these, these sophists, that they're able to, to use their education, and he did admit they tended to be pretty well educated. They knew how to use the verbiage, if you will. Um, but they knew how to use it uh, to manipulate and, and to their own success. Mm-hmm. And one of the second things he talks about there in, in, the, in there is he talks about the kind of – go ahead, Glenn. Yeah. Yeah, just before you go on, you know, you were talking about the difference between honorarium and uh, payment. And, you know, the easiest way to sort of, I think, to summarize the problem is the old proverb, the one who pays the piper calls the tune. Yeah. You know, so so if you are paying someone for something, you are paying them for the result you want. Yes. Which is why you really don't want to think about that as what you're doing with your pastor or whomever. Um, you know, there are a lot of people you don't want that. You want the truth. Yes. So. Yes. And, and, and that was kind of a, a buffer, you know, to, to, to kind of make, make those mm-hmm. distinctions. And, you know, to Plato's credit, um, it's very... Christian insight there. I mean, again, this is why I mean Christians had no problem criticizing Plato where Plato was wrong, and Plato was wrong in many places. Nevertheless, I think in these relationships to reality, truth, and goodness, there, there's a lot that in his critique that we would say amen to um, without problem. The second thing that was interesting about the sophists is they tend to be, you know, the quote unquote strangely handsome, right? It's the, um, um, and and so one of the dialogues is it's using Socrates and say, it's, um, these people are, you know, the, the, the honorable in the crowd that you're interested in that really doesn't pursue things as a sophist is ugly like you, Socrates. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Socrates was famously ugly. That's right. And, you know, if you see any sort of representations of Socrates, he's not going to win any beauty contests. That's right. That's right. But again, here you have this kind of external appeal um, that, you know, we, we could think today of something as shallow as the Hollywood image, right, or the entertainment industry that's, right. you know, kind of found its way into the church, to which if you, you look a certain way and you have a certain kind of fashion, that puts you in a sense of relevance that has a kind of authority that should kind of somehow... You mean, skin, you mean skinny jeans shouldn't find their way into a <laughs> pastor's wardrobe? That's right. Is that what you're pl- implying, Tom? Yeah, and I, and I think did, maybe did you guys see jeans the- would be a, a, an apt extension of this kind of. <laughs> and uh, yeah, did you guys see that uh, that me- that that image that was going around of a of a of a of a pug <laughs> standing up on his hind legs, no. kind of from the side where he looks pretty portly in the middle, but skinny in the legs, <laughs> and it's it it's uh, and it says uh, this is what. The uh, forty to fifty year old pastor who tries to look cool in skinny jeans looks like. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's that's why our pugs are always positioned not standing on their hind legs. <laughs> you won't see that on our pug. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> um, but the the next stage, of course, is the, you know. Plato's, you know, 
interest here, the sort of what does he have against the sophists, finally, it's not simply fashion, it's not simply that they get paid for it, but it really has to do with what he considered, you know, according to Pieper here, is the corrupting of language. Um, the specific threat comes from the sophist way of cultivating the word and with exceptional awareness of linguistic nuances and utmost formal intelligence from their way of pushing and perfecting the employment of verbal constructions to crafty limits, corrupting the meaning and the dignity of the very words. In other words, they, on the one hand, they understand that words communicate things and they try to aim at reality. Um, but on the other hand, they want to deny that they, that they have to do that. And so they, they take advantage of the fact that we're expecting words to communicate, communicate. And by doing that, they can play on them and manipulate them and remove them from reality and get words to do things that manipulate and take advantage of. And so, and so, so our expectation as communicants who use language is that when we communicate, we're communicating reality to each other. And when we do that, we use language in such a way that it, it is most apt to reference the way things are and the meaning things have. And then when we do that, we're communicating with each other. And intrinsic to that is the dignity of the other person as well. Because I'm not using language to manipulate, I'm using it to communicate reality to you. And so what he's concerned is, is the denigration of communication, true dialogue, and then the, the, the proper correspondence of words to reality. I mean, these, these things. Now, now th this is something I'd like to pick up on a little bit because sometimes in our circles, we have people who are advocating the arts as a way of sort of, uh, a, sort of addressing our society today in ways uh, that maybe uh, are easier for people to receive the things that we have to say. Uh, as opposed to, say, propositions and arguments and logical presentations and so forth. And while I'm sympathetic, obviously, to the arts, I mean, I've written uh, fiction, um, I still am also at the same time committed strongly to reality. Yeah. In my mind, I want to use fiction to tell the truth. Yeah. I don't think that's what's going on with most uh, writers today. I think they're playing to... Uh, ego and uh, sort of sort of a desire to self-create, to sort of transcend human limits, uh, and uh, really celebrate the impossible. And not not in the sense that Jesus was referring to when he said, you know, if you believe all things are possible, but in the sense that if I want something to be so, it must be possible. Yeah. If you, if you get my drift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where, where I wanted to go with this, or the, the place that my mind immediately goes to, and longtime listeners will probably anticipate the next word that's coming out of my, my mouth, is Rousseau. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, which, brings up, which brings up another meme. Did you see the memes yes. <laughs> of you and the, and the book that was found at, I guess, the, the antique bookstore of Rousseau? And your yeah. eyes are like... <laughs> fire. That's great. Yes. Yeah, uh, there, there have been a couple of Rousseau memes involving me, but, but you you look at what Rousseau does and say the social contract or something like that. The way Rousseau carries his argument is he 
uses words that, all right, well, first of all, just a little bit of, of terminology. When you're talking about a word's denotation, you're talking about its dic dictionary definition. Yeah. When you're talking about a word's connotation, you're talking about sort of the emotional response that the word generates. That's it's a little more complicated than that, but that's the basic idea. And Rousseau uses the word freedom, which is a word everybody likes, but he redefines it to mean submission to the general will. In other words, having the final determination of all of your interests submitted to the general will. He says that's what true freedom is. Now, when you think about it, that's the antithesis of what most people would think of when they think of freedom. But the fact that he's talking about freedom means that everybody likes the fact that he's talking about freedom and he's proposing a way to freedom and all that. And they sort of miss the fact that he's redefined the term out of all recognition. That's right. So this is a tool that's typically used by propagandists, advertisers, people like that, where you redefine the meaning of a word and then use the word and let the emotional connotation of the word carry the argument rather than what you're really saying. Yeah, that's, and that's, the, kind of thing, that's the kind of thing that the sophists would do. Yeah, that's one of the things I wish that Carl had addressed in his book on the rise and triumph of the modern self because he addresses Rousseau really quite well, but he never gets mm -hmm. to the general will and how paradoxically Rousseau's approach doesn't end up providing the kind of freedom that people assume it actually ends up resulting in the kind of tyranny that, that, uh, that we're trying to prevent, uh, you know, at least uh, the founders of our country were trying to prevent. Yeah. Well, you know, during the terror in the French Revolution, Robespierre was a devotee of, of Rousseau. And he argued that since the people were angry, it was his job to execute the general will, which involved executing all kinds of people. Right. Well, and, and then what you, you, you get going on there, I mean, in relationship kind of the, to, to, to the running theme here, is, is you're already with, with Rousseau, you're already into the Enlightenment territory, which, which is already a, a kind of um, a reversal of binaries, as they say in literature. Um, to, to, to where the Enlightenment, because it, it removes itself from the Christian theological vision in its, in its apprehension of God and all things related to God and, and transcendence, um, really starts to ground meaning and reference in a different, a different arena. Um, but it uses Christianity to do it. And Christ, again, Christian references to reality to manipulate that language to import some other set of concepts and meanings, which it knows. I mean, maybe in some of the Enlightenment figures, it thought it bumped up against the reality that had been suppressed by Christianity. Okay, let's, let's give them that much. I don't, I don't agree with that, but, but say that could happen in some cases, right? Um, nature maybe wasn't given its due or, or something along those lines. Um, but they at least sold it on that, or that Christianity properly understood was the Enlightenment line. I mean, this is the way they sold it. But they had to sell it, and they used Christian reality vision to sell it, all the while redefining concepts over and over again as, as indebted to them as they were um, to do it. But, but by the time you get to postmodernism and, and figures we'll get to, like Derrida, um, he wants to break the binaries completely. Uh, he, wants to, he wants to create a, a brokenness between signified and signed. He wants to get rid of any reference of binaries that had any meaning even in the enlightenment which owed much to christianity so so what's happening here yeah no mm -hmm. go ahead 
Well, it, it might be helpful to talk a little bit about structuralism and what they mean when they're talking about binaries here. Yeah. Um, in, in, in structuralism, uh, the idea is that, that words are, tend to be defined in terms of their opposites. Yeah. They refer to these as oppositional binaries. Yeah. So male is defined as being opposite of female. Yeah. Okay. And the, the thing that's most significant about the concept of oppositional binaries is it's not dealing primarily with true opposites, yeah. like black and white. Instead, it's dealing with things like, well, good and evil, where there is not necessarily a clear distinction between the two, yeah. right and wrong, where there is not necessarily a clear distinction, and so on. And the idea then within structuralism is that these binaries provide the, well, the structure of society. They set up a value system, hierarchies, all of those kinds of things. So when you're getting to the postmodernists who are talking about disrupting binaries, they're really looking at the kinds of hierarchies and power structures in the society that are encoded in the language. Yeah. And so, at least that's what they think they're doing. And, and so a, a different way of looking at it, okay, with, with Plato, he's concerned with something Christianity was concerned with, a, a kind of transcendent reference for which all meaning and, and, and the connection of words to reality are grounded in, the logos and the logoi. And, and in Christianity, this is incarnated, so that, that this comes on the scene. And so with Plato, according to Pieper, one of the essential aspects of, of words is their referential character to true meaning that is grounded in real reality. So there is a truth connection, and this is the ground of communication. If I'm going to have genuine dialogue with another person, that ground of reality has to be there for words to truly communicate. Um, so to get to, so, to remove words from reality is to break communication down completely and enter manipulation. Now, now what happens yeah. with structuralism if, 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 is instead of uh, Chris, go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, I want to just pause here uh, because there's obviously some question begging going on. With yeah. structuralism, post-structuralism, yeah, because they've rejected your understanding, or at least the classical Christian understanding, without saying so. Yes, and so you got a lot of cool young, reformed, <laughs> you know, urban church planter types mm -hmm. in their skinny jeans who have adopted, you know, the, you know, post-structuralism, and think they understand language and have no clue what the Christian understanding traditionally has been of how language works. That's right. They think that they're the cutting edge and they're going to yeah. deliver and liberate us all yeah. from the oppressive sort of, you know, <laughs> binaries, yeah. you know, in the name of Jesus now. Of ancient high they have no <laughs> Right. Yeah. But they have no idea what the classical Christian understanding was that you just outlined. That's, that's right. And they don't understand it's Trinitarian incarnational ground and overcoming. And, 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 and so we'll, we'll get back to that. I, I think that that's the, the thing Christianity brings is, is the Christian difference and, and the salvific difference, if you will, and civilizational difference, I think, um, the ground, ground true, true forward moving in, in terms of the kingdom and its purposes and true justice and, and everything else. Um, but one of the things that with structuralism, Glenn, as you pointed out, is what happens with structuralists is this is similar to what I've always talked about is the Enlightenment sort of carrying with it Christianity, but grounding it somewhere else. 
So rather, the stru structuralism is basically the way in which the ground up structures things. A material base or a set of conscious forces orients itself, not directed from, towards a transcendence or grounded in it, but imminently. Whether it's in matter for Marx or whether it's in some kind of consciousness arising with, with, with Darwin and, and, and other figures. And so the structure then is, a is sort of like the base and everything is kind of the outflow of that. And so the meaning web is grounded in this set of forces that precedes us, and we are kind of the, the exemplification of, but all communication is imminent within this structure. Um, and so Foucault, for example, is going to talk about that as a power network. Um, Marx would see it as structure and superstructure and economic at its roots. And, um, and you had other, uh, Bar Roland Barthes, uh, or Barthes, however you ever talk about it, would we, we talk about different, the human being as basically the exemplification of a structure. But this is ground up, this is imminent, and, and it's a set of this worldly forces, and it's unmoored from a transcendence. So the meaning now is contingent and non-absolute in, in, in the structuralist paradigm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now... I was a linguistics major as an undergrad. And one of the first things they told me in a linguistics class was that words are arbitrary sets of sounds. That's right. And there is no connection between word and reality. Yeah. There's no reason why a table should be called a table rather than a mesa. Yeah. The particular set of sounds is completely arbitrary. Yeah. And so, you know, once you start from that point, then language is, to use more modern terminology, a cultural construct. Yeah. Which means that with Sapir-Whorf, the, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis says that language shapes thought more than the other way around. That's right. In some cases, one version of it, language determines thought. Yeah. And thus, everything we think we know about reality is also functionally a social construct. Yeah. You know, this is where all of this stuff ends up leading. Sure. And then when you get to Foucault or uh, oppositional binaries, you're adding in power structures and things like that into the mix as well. Well, that's right. Yeah, this so is what, what you I have is getting at with when I was. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Chris. Well, this is what I was getting at when I was talking about question begging. These people don't ever sort of bring to the surface the the sort of the you know I guess the assumptions that they're working with, and um, they never do justice to the to the whole way of thinking that they more or less assume is metro, you know, moribund or irrelevant. It doesn't exist anymore. They, they fail to do that. By the way, a, sa a sales pitch for my book on Bombadil, I address all of this in the, Bomb <laughs> in the Bombadil book. Oh, very good. And so, yeah. there, Chris. <laughs> good, good moment for it. And so what you kind of get is, you know, um, so let's, let's take, you know, um, something maybe that has some, some durability to it. Let's take, let's take a particular rock or stone, right? So in a classical view, you have a kind of pre-existent thing itself, the stone itself, um, and then a connection to it with the name. Um, and so, and then you had, you know, so then you had a concept that, which is their term, sign the signified, right? And then the sound image is the signifier. And so what, what structuralism basically says is the relationship between that sound and that name and that thing is arbitrary. And it's based more on this, the, the structure and the organization. And, and you can see this with Foucault, right? 
Um, there is no such thing as really a normative human sexuality. It's all related to the particular structure. So, or justice, you know, uh, Alistair McIntyre's great question, who's justice, which rationality? So you have different kinds of conceptions of justice that don't seem to be eternal and repetitive, grounded in a reality, but seem to be related to the configuration of the particular structures of society which embody those particular understandings. So here, the concept is an outgrowth of the structure, as Glenn said, not the, the, the particular society as basically an outgrowth of the, con you know, the, the, the reality. I mean, that's, it's a flipping so of Plato on its head, if you will. Yeah, let me take us back to Tolkien for a second because some people might say, well, how in the world could this uh, be addressed in Tolkien? Tolkien knew all about this stuff. <laughs> That's right. He was a philologist. He was dealing with this stuff all the time. And there are a couple of clever approaches that Tolkien takes. So let's take the Ents and their language. Remember in Entish, every word tells the story of the thing that is being referred to. Yeah. Remember the time that Merry and Pippin are with Treebeard and they're standing on a hill. And then... Uh, you know, Treebird, who is speaking, you know, a second language or not his native language, talking, you know, in terms of the common speech, says, what do we call this thing again? And they say, uh, they make a couple of suggestions, and then they say, hill? And he says, yes, that's it, hill. A hasty word for something that's been here since this world has taken its shape. Right. You know, in other words, the, the, the word uh, in Antish for hill takes a while to say because it tells the story of the thing that it's referring to. That's why it takes so long to say anything in Entish. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but, but with Bombadil, the approach is different. Bombadil sings all the time. <laughs> and it's actually his songs which possess power. Now, what do we know about Tolkien's world? What do we learn in the Silmarillion? How was the world made? Yeah. Music. Music. Yeah. The singing of the Ainur. Yeah. Yep. So actually what you know I believe is going on with regard to Bombadil is he's re-singing or re or he's echoing or retelling uh, the music or re reclaiming the music. And he's actually, his words are based uh, on the essential nature of things. Hmm. They're not arbitrary. These are not arbitrary, silly songs. Right. Uh, in fact, when, to when Tolkien addresses the subject of his songs, his nonsense songs, he says they seem like nonsense. He uses that word seem hmm. or that qualifier seemed yeah. again and again. When he, whenever he's, he's doing that on purpose. This is a guy who never used a word without meaning to use it. Yeah. So here are two approaches to the classical understanding of language that I think are completely sort of uh, out of favor in our world today. Well, that and that opens up a whole lot of things in terms of, uh, I mean, I, I think being a musician in, in once upon a time when I took it more seriously than I do now, which I'd love to take more seriously now, um, but I remember there was something with all the musicians, whatever their belief system is, when they started to connect with music, they went towards the roots of the tradition they were studying. And they were digging into a mine of reference and formation and shaping that they understood transcended themselves. Um, but they weren't structuralists sort of at the base, whatever they were ideologically. They understood there's an echo of transcendence reverberating through those lines uh, of each person um, hearing and responding, if you will, to something in creation, which, I mean, I think Tolkien's antenna for that, I think, is unparalleled. 
Um, I mean, it, it, it's a course, you know, we understand it's, it's underwritten place, but, but actually you see, I mean, you, you think of when the incarnation and, and the new Testament with the host and the angels singing, right? I mean, you, this is, you, you have this, this grounding of music in, you know, anchored in heaven to, to use Remy Bragg's phrase. Um, I, I think, you know, I think they're on to something that of course can't be accounted for with structuralism for sure. And uh, it, it undercuts the whole artistic endeavor eventually. I mean, it, yeah. I, I think that's... This reminds me of uh, uh, John Milbank and uh, the, the radical orthodoxy people. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them out of Cambridge. There's a, there's a term they refer, uh, they use it called the suspended middle. Yes. In other words, there's something suspended from above that is accessible to us from below yeah. which provides us with a kind of linkage to the things that are above. And it's relating to what we're getting at right now with language. Yeah, that's right. In that no. contrast no. with the broken middle of Derrida, which would say that there is a break between signified and sign that can, ne can never be. So, yeah, I mean, I think Milbank is deliberately um, outflanking, to use his term, um, Derrida. That's his term, outflanking. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Glenn, you had, you had, had an idea, Rob. What, one of the things that I've sort of pondered a bit in this connection is, you know, after, you know, I knew Tolkien believed that words were connected to reality. And, you know, as a linguist, um, I was taught, no, no, this is not the case. It's, a, it's completely arbitrary. <laughs> and then we have to reintroduce the idea of the logos. Yeah. You know, so, so what that tells us is that word is intimately tied to reality. Yeah. All things are made through yeah. the word. The word, it, you know, so, so the question that comes up in my mind is what is the connection between human language and logos? Well, and that's the very How thing. How does, you know, that's the very I, thing that I mean, I've got culture is, is trying to sever because it's following without knowing it. Derrida and the deconstructionists mm -hmm. attempt to rid the world of logocentrism, as they call it, um, this is this is a famous term. They look to give, you know, this is what always gets me, man. For, for, you know, as much as I love my Vantillians and the rest, Derrida understood the metaphysical issue. He just rejected the right one, where most of us aren't even addressing it. He understood that all of Western thought indebted both to the Platonic line, but especially to Christianity, was logocentric, logos-centric, if you will. Um, and Christianity understood its appreciation of Plato along with its radical critique as grounded in the connection between transcendent logos and the, the meaning of all things. And so the logos gives meaning and purpose to all things in it established the connection between the transcendental signified and then every other signified, to use that language. Um, and so all of reality grounded in, as, as, as John's gospel says, you know, that, that the Christ is the illumination of everything. He's the one through whom all things come to be, the logos, and that there is a logoi that gets its full meaning, fulfillment, and significance in relationship to him, that we are fundamentally a logocentric view. Um, and this is something Derrida is specifically trying to detach from. Um, think of it this way. Nietzsche wanted to de detach um, truth from being, right? 
Well, Derrida wants to radicalize that and take words and everything else from logocentrism or the presence of transcendence. So they're on a similar project. Well, it, it, they kind of necessarily follow, don't they, Tom? Yeah, I mean, if you, that's if right. you do the first, then you have to do the second. That's right. right. And so the criticism, as Glenn, Glenn was referencing, sort of to structuralists, is they criticize structuralists and even Foucault for basically saying structuralists presumed, like the Enlightenment, that there still was a center, and a fixed place of meaning or some kind of origin, but it was imminent rather than transcendent. And so what Derrida wants to do is get rid of that altogether and basically create no reference point of meaning other than a constant deferral of meaning because what something is isn't an essence but a constant negation in relationship to other things. For example, a cat. Well, what is a cat? Well, it's not a mat. It's not uh, you know, uh, a truck. It's not a this. So this constant deferral of meaning without any center to organize it and, and, and give it anything more than just a referential relationship. So binaries break down here because you don't have any center of meaning that holds those binaries as true opposites. And so, and so what it does is... Mm-hmm, go ahead. Well, there's also a political element to this as well. That's right. Because since the binary, in binaries imply hierarchy, yeah. one is always superior to the other. By disrupting the binaries, you are fundamentally disrupting the hierarchies and therefore, well, disrupting society, which is one of the reasons why Derrida is so important for CRT. Yeah. Right. And, 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 it, and this is out of touch with just sort of basic realities, you know, in the sense that, yeah, your, your concepts may be overturned, but if the logos is genuinely, you know, the, the very foundation of reality, that, that means that you, your language now is out of out of touch with that. Yeah. You cannot convey the truths anyway. But the, the truths haven't gone away. Reality, in, in this case, is just simply something that you cannot even apprehend any longer, and it's going to roll you over. It's going to run you over. It, it, yeah, it, it's not dependent upon us. Yeah. yeah, we're at the end of that hideous strength. Right. Well, that, that's the very, right. The very end of the part. Uh, and it's interesting that yeah. you talk about sort of forerunners of thought that lead to kind of Derrida and this kind of sophistry. And we'll, we'll, we'll get over to the political manipulation in a minute because I think you're right, exactly right. Um, this is where we are. Uh, Louis Marcus, uh, he's the one who did the recent book on Plato, but he's an interesting thinker altogether, writes a lot on literary thinking and, and stuff. And he, he, he may be someone worth having on a show if we could kind of wean him in. But he's talking about the influences on Derrida that were sort of forerunners. And so to break the ontological chain, in other words, to get the presence of any kind of reality that determines us out of the picture, he follows Nietzsche, of course, with being and truth basically being arbitrary, right? I mean, that's, that's Nietzsche's big thing, um, breaking the bond between being and truth and reality. So, so truth is nothing more than a, than a, what, what is his famous line? The, uh, a kind of arbitrary set of metaphors that have become solidified yeah. that we believe is true. Yeah. And it, 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 yeah, he uses military, you know, uh, you know, I can't remember as like, uh, I know the quote you're getting, but getting at, but he, he uh, uh, expresses in such a way so as to convey the idea that, that language is a kind of violence. Yes. That it's a kind of, uh, uh, just a way of manipulating uh, things uh, to serve your own interests. And, that, and that's where, where uh, P, uh, Joseph Pieber is going to go with that, because he understands that once you unmoor it from 
logos, and then you, then you, then you, then it has to do something else, right? And, and violence and manipulation become that sphere because the arbitrary becomes a false absolute. And, and, but the next one he talks about is Freud's influence and the way in which the subjective self, which used to be the presence of the logos, if you will, in the world, at least there was some kind of being in reality um, that was more than just the arbitrary. And this is the enlightenment, if you will, the grounding of all reality in the, in the presence of a self. Well, Freud basically demolishes this notion of self as anything more than a byproduct of other forces, right? Marx does similar, um, naturalism does the other. And so this is why you talk about the kind of eradication of the self in post-modernity as, as a social construct and nothing, there, is, there is no identity, as we talked in our last show. And then he talks about kind of um, the way in which Nietzsche kills ontology, Freud kills epistemology. You can't get to uh, reality because, because you are nothing more than the byproduct of forces. But then he talks about Heidegger's elimination of presence altogether. And so we move from speech as being primary in Western thought to writing right, as a secondary thing, and then writing detached from any presence of an author or intention. And so writing and language is a series of grammar and signs and ideas, but it's completely self-referential, and it has no connection to anything beyond itself. So you, you have a text of the Bible, but it's completely open to whatever kinds of combinations of meaning we actually can import into it. And this is why, okay. this is why, I, I'll just, I'll, let me just say this quickly and I'll turn it over to you. But uh, this is why uh, the doctrine of, um, in, you know, sort of inerrancy is uh, in trouble right now in, yeah. uh, you know, conservative circles. Because yeah. inerrancy is, is operating with a set of assumptions that have been uh, cast aside in modern thought with uh, post-structuralist uh, thought and post-modernism and so forth. So we no longer really uh, actually have people who believe uh, that Scripture speaks in the way that maybe they did 100 years ago when the doctrine of inerrancy was developed. Uh, yeah. You know, there's always been confidence in the church that, you know, God is speaking to us through the Scriptures. What I'm getting at with the doctrine of inerrancy is something that is more contemporary in terms of how we justify that, how we sort of reinforce that understanding and, and make the Bible, uh, you know, sort of we understand how uh, this uh, reliability is established. All that is gone. And I think that it would be a, it would be a really, uh, somebody out there in, you know, I don't know if it's in podcast land or somewhere else, it would be great if we could pull together the syllabi that are being used in seminaries and in Christian colleges that are addressing the subject of language. Obviously, I'm referring to English departments. You know, I, as far as I can tell, in terms of my own experience, in terms of the conversations I've had with people who teach uh, in English departments, um, uh, this stuff is all through the Christian College Coalition. You know, they've, they've dressed it up, they've baptized it. Now it's, uh, you know, made acceptable because it's, it's being promoted in the interest of, you know, equity and inclusion and all this other kind of stuff. You, you find that, that sort, of, uh, sort of manner of, of, of talking about these things. And, and then, you know, people who were kind of holding on to the kinds of things that we're talking about right now are dying off. Yeah. You know, they're retiring, they're dying off. 
they're they're really they don't really run the show much uh, in you know the Christian Coyote Coalition or even in our seminaries in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. Now, just just to help people understand this a little bit better, the idea that words don't all words do is point to other words. They're self-referential. That's all that they do. Um, this this sounds really kind of counterintuitive because if you say something, you say a word, you expect people to understand that it's you know a noun is pointing to something outside of itself. But to, to understand why this seems plausible, consider the word green. When I say the word green, you do not know what I mean. Do I mean a color? Do I mean uh, envious? Do I mean seasick? Um, do I mean ecologically aware and, in, and involved? Um, do I mean um, unripe? You know, blackberries are red when they're green. Okay. Uh, do, actually, I don't mean any of those. I'm, act, I'm what I'm thinking of is my friend Doug Green that I went to school with. <laughs> and, and that's until until you until you place the word in a sentence in a context, you don't know what the word means. And and it's because of things like that that they argue that language is just an internal game where words only refer to other words. And have no connection to anything outside themselves. That's right. You know, words, uh, you know, they don't contain meaning, but they, they get their meaning from the company they keep. Um, and that's, and that, that was like right. Derrida's whole point. Um, the word différence, you remember that, which was untranslated. It was a pun, which could mean difference or the same word could mean to defer. And so his point is this, you know, it breaks down the binary of speech and writing in which pure speech was privileged. In other words, you can't tell by just saying that word in French whether you mean difference or defer. And so because of that, for him, writing, therefore, starts to take on, and this is where we start to move in. I know in theology, the text, the text, the text, almost becomes its own um, center in, in an autonomous reference, set of you know, codes and references. Um, and so, but you see what's happening here is the, the, the minute that transcendental reference kind of gets thrown out of the picture, and then the imminent grounding, whether in human consciousness or society or social forces, breaks down. And then we're left with, you know, this is for Derrida, it was called play. Um, that was what he was left with. His famous, famous article introduced a deconstruction as play. Um, but, the, you know, in a sense, you know, um, you can talk about it as sort of adolescent kind of or late. I mean, you can see why this is attractive to the college student who moves into a business <laughs> world just starts deconstructing everything, basically exposing its its kind of its binary, arbitrary binaries, right? And this is what we're seeing when we go, we may think it's it, it, it's non-destructive, but look what they're doing to our bathrooms, right? I mean, it has real life, as Chris says, real life significance. <laughs> well, and I think it also uh, sort of... Uh, cloaks a kind of, uh, getting back to, you know, question begging, a kind of univocity, uh, which doesn't accept the idea that reality itself works analogically. So, yeah. you know, getting back to your, 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 obs you know, your, your comment about green, Glenn, is there actually is a relationship between all those different uses oh, sure. of the word green. Purport, yeah, and, uh, so, and if, if we were to like go and do the actual, the actual work of tracing out the, the connections, we would see that it isn't arbitrary at all. There are reasons why we use this word green in all these different ways. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, and, and but that you know that's they don't think they don't think it through that way. In a lot of ways, it's playing. It's sophism. Right. What they're yeah. doing is they throw out an example like that without probing it deeper and without people asking any further questions and, and, and querying what the significance of all of these different, well, apparently different meanings of the word green are. Yeah, what I've... It, it, what I've it's literally a sophistical game. Well, getting back to that, to sophistry, what I've learned is that there's a kind of pseudo-sophistication uh, that a lot of, of these people possess. And then when you actually start to dig into this stuff, if you actually know more than they do, it completely undoes them because they love to yeah. go through life undoing other people. They have no way of responding to any of the, of the, of the things that I've noted or you stated or anything. They, they really think that they are at the pinnacle of you know, sophistication and knowledge when it comes to the, the way language works. And, it, and it's interesting because when I, when I do hear, I mean, like I said, Derrida, who I think he, he, he had more of an antenna for metaphysics and the implications than a lot of Christian. And but you think of you know uh, I can't think of his name right now the one who debates Milbank all the time the kind of a com, you know postmodern commie is it Zizek I can't think of his name right now um, but but yeah I mean he he he's he's an interesting character from Eastern Europe he's a, he's a you know full blown commie in some way. oh I know who you're talking about yeah yeah, yeah I, can't or, I, I can't remember but anyway yeah. <laughs> went back right. when I read him years ago. yeah. He, but, you know, you often think, I mean, I think he understands metaphysically what's at stake when, you, you know, I don't think it in terms of consequences, but in terms of he knows there's a metaphysical issue. He's, he, he has an antenna for what he doesn't want. Um, but in the yeah. he calls well, himself well, sort think, of a Christian atheist, right? I mean, go ahead, Chris. Right, right. Well, I think a lot of these guys uh, kind of have, like, like Nietzsche, a kind of uh, love-hate relationship with the Christian metaphysic. Yes. On the one hand, they kind of have a longing for it. On the other hand, uh, they they're trying to break away from it, trying to justify yeah. something. Uh, you know, with Derrida, wasn't he a homosexual? You know, there's there's just stuff going on in the lives of these people that do do come into uh, to play when it comes to sort of justifying their their programs. Yeah, you know, we are getting to that point where we need to bring it in plane. for a landing. <laughs> yeah. So, so well, I guess maybe a last turn would be uh, kind of the way in which he starts, and, and everyone should read that little book by Joseph Pieper, which he turns to show that um, the sophistry leads inevitably to kind of tyranny eventually, and we're seeing that today. He says, the common element in all of this is the degeneration of language into an instrument of rape. I mean, that's very harsh language. I mentioned that in the last show. It does contain a violence, albeit in a latent form. In other words, when you move it from its transcendence, it actually does, it begins the process of violence. He said, the lesson is the abuse of political powers fundamentally connected with the sophistic abuse of the word. Indeed, finds in it a fertile soil in which to hide and grow and get ready so much so that the latent potential of totalitarian poison can be ascertained by observing the symptom of the public abuse of language. So this doesn't leave us with play. This leaves us with tyranny. Yeah, and this is a guy who knew what he was talking about. He, he had seen the Nazis. He had seen the communists, both up close and personal. He's yeah. not talking about this might be what happens. He's talking about I saw it happen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's, he's anyway, basically unpacking it, uh, it. Yeah. 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 So, Glenn, do you have anything you want to add to the conversation? Uh, 
loads, but this is not the time or the place. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of at the same spot. This was a great topic, Tom, uh, and maybe one that we should go back to. If, if, if folks, uh, you know, uh, are so inclined, uh, Peeper does a great job. I mean, he's very accessible. He's, you know, I, I compared him to C.S. Lewis earlier, uh, and the reason I did that is that he has a way, like Lewis had, of taking really uh, profound and uh, uh, deep things and putting them on a shelf where most people can reach them. And that's what you have here with this book by Peeper. Yeah. Anyway, anything else you want to say, Tom, as we, as we land? No, I mean, another show I'd like to kind of follow is Lewis Marcus' notion of the way in which the Trinity and the Incarnation kind of answer Derrida and Sophists from a Christian angle. But I think we, we, we can appreciate the Platonic lens of, of worrying of what happens when you try to move language, speech, from reality, and even if if Plato had a, a you know both a incoherent and inconclusive understanding of reality, he had an antenna for its significance and why we should hold fast to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this ability to sort of um, you know separate the wheat from the chaff and the pagans is something that Christians. Uh, used to be able to do pretty well, and I'm not sure we can do it as well as we used to. But now I'm working my way through Augustine's uh, City of God, and I'm in a section where he's dealing with Vero, and uh, it's just it's just marvelous to see how he separates the wheat from the chaff in Vero, and it says these are things that Vero had right; these are things he was completely wrong about. Augustine, I think, is is is, is someone we need to learn a lot from. Truly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyways, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you, and we do appreciate you. And uh, if you appreciate us, it's always great when pe- when, when people give us a, a five star rating on you know <laughs> iTunes or somewhere else. I've noticed that uh, when I mention this, people actually do that. <laughs> I can go to the show and I can tell where the stars were, you know, in terms of our rating before, how many people then after. Uh, but if you do that, that would be, that, that, that would help us out. Uh, we're told by all the people who know about this stuff that it makes a difference. And I'd like to not forget all those people who ask questions that we haven't gotten back to just, just hang in there. We're, we're trying to work our way through. Some of them are so good. I just can't answer yeah. them in an afternoon, but I, I, my aim is to get to them where I can. And I'm sure Chris and Glenn are, are in the same situation. <laughs> right. Right. Well, anyway, thanks again for listening to the theology podcast. Bye-bye. Bye now.